The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, last night, this is my wife, my amazing wife, Jennifer. She uh, made it in last night. We did win 21 to nothing. And so uh, Blue Devils, Forks Up, Family, how those are hashtags, by the way, social media hashtags. So great win for us. Uh, so last night what we did is we, we, we tried to place marriage inside the, the framework for which God intended to be, God's glory and the uh, putting on display Christ's love for his church for the world to see as the gospel is proclaimed. Um, and so inside of that, we, we tried to sit, uh, sit down uh, inside that purpose and make some sense out of it. And so this morning, what we want to do uh, under the section in love and pushing through the stages of life, we want to expand a little bit on that. So Jennifer uh, has a master's degree in marriage and family counseling. She works uh, in inside one of our organizations called Restoration Rome in partnership with the YMCA, who's her actual employer, uh, working in the hard part, the hardest part of our county, uh, dealing, uh, dealing with kids. And, and so we and our family, I, I shared a little bit of our story, we uh, fostered and adopted a two-year-old uh, African-American boy out of uh, the neighborhood that she works in. Uh, and that's been, what, 12 years ago? And so uh, Daniel's 14 now. And so and so we have, we have been through stages of, of life, as I shared with you last night, and, uh, and so we're sort of at the bottom of that chart, working our way back up. And so what Jennifer's going to do in a few moments is share a little bit about stages of life, and, and you're going to hear a little bit of our story along the way. And, uh, and, and then we're going to give you, and she's not going to do that very long, we'll give you a chance to ask some questions and then, and then we will we'll respond to those questions and hopefully be assistance to you. I do ask that you do this. State your question clearly. If you could actually say the question, because um, so what I'm going to do is repeat it so that it can be recorded appropriately so that people are listening online, they know the question that was asked, and, uh, and then can hear the response. And so, so I'm not real sharp, and so if you make a statement, I'll have a hard time Alex Trebeking that and making it into a question. So if you could ask a question, I'll repeat it, and then we'll do our best to answer. Is that cool? All right. This is Jennifer Jolly. So, Jennifer. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are y'all? Super glad to be here. Sorry that I had to miss last night. Um, but really what we wanted this morning to be and what Snowbird wanted this morning to be is a little bit more practical, bent toward the practical, bent toward applying some of what we're learning and what we know um, and what Mitch shared last night into the daily grind of life. Um, so we wanted to... Um, just give you a little bit more of the chart that he showed you very quickly last night and then give you time to ask questions, um, if that makes sense. So I do need to say thank you to Brody for those very kind words that he gave in introducing us earlier this morning and also thank him for the high expectations he may have set. So especially for a question and answer when we don't know what's going to be asked of us. So I hope we can deliver on that. Um, but we wanted you to be able to see this chart. And another thing I wanted to say is I just love how 
the Lord works in his sovereignty because we did not know John and Spicy before last weekend, before our first interaction together. And we didn't get a chance to collaborate on what we were all going to talk about or what we were going to be able to address. And the way the Lord just wove in their talk with the opportunity um, to kind of spend some time looking at marital satisfaction um, was just perfect. So um, I really feel like it is the message of the Lord for y'all this weekend for us all. Um, but we wanted you to have a chance to look at this chart a little bit more than in just briefly in the context of the sermon last night. Um, and a couple things to keep in mind or be reminded about this chart. One of the things that I find fascinating, this is a, a, a marital satisfaction chart from a study. And um, I just pulled one. There are multiple ones out there. To find them, you can Google them. But usually you're digging around in counseling journals or sociological journals or psychological journals or something like that. And you pretty much have to kind of be reading a study, a report of a study that can kind of be a little boring, to be honest, um, and dry. But these charts are very helpful. This is the one I liked the best because it actually lists the stages for you. So what is interesting about this whole process is through time in modernity, in American culture, for the past several decades, you have different entities in different places and spaces of the country or even industrialized nations like the UK and America who are studying couples on their measured self-report of marital satisfaction. It doesn't matter the decade. The pattern remains the same. Now, the points on the chart and graphs that they use and how they report it may be slightly different as far as if they're using a 100 scale or not. But what's fascinating to me is that the pattern remains the same. Whether it's a study in the 30s or the 50s or the 70s or the 90s or now, the patterns are pretty much the same. The other thing to keep in mind about this, though, and I want you to hear this um, pretty well, is that... This is to be seen as descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. So what we're looking at is when you survey hundreds and thousands of people, this is what they're saying their experience is, and what we can gather from that is there's a level of normalcy there. This isn't to say, okay, everyone's path and journey is going to look like this. So you may look at this chart and say, I would not rate my marital satisfaction that low at the stage that I've been in or the stage that I'm in, that doesn't apply to me. And that is great. I, I want your marital satisfaction to be high. Um, but it does say this is normal tip. So what is encouraging from this is if we know this on the front end, we know that this can be normal, that this ebb and flow, this peaks and valleys of our marital satisfaction through our journey together in life, our 53-year, 60-year, 75-year journey, whatever it's going to be, when we know that this is normal, we don't have to be rocked by it when we find ourselves in a valley. We don't have to look at ourselves and each other and go, we're broken, we're irreparable, or we're disposable. Does that make sense? So, like I think Mitch shared with you last night, we have sat with couples in premarital counseling and showed them this chart. This was shown to us first 20 years ago when we first got married, and we scoffed and laughed and said, okay, that's nice, counselor, but that's not going to apply to us. We were so wrong. So, so many of the people that we've sat with 
we've shared this with them and they're like, that is nice, but I really don't think that's gonna apply to us. And we're still in community with them and they come up to us 10 years later and they're like, remember that chart? Yes, we remember the chart. So also keep in mind that this is a chart of marital satisfaction through the family life cycle. And the family life cycle is talking about usually couples who have caregiving duties. So you can see a lot of this is child-centric in that it talks about the different stages of having kids. Childbearing, um, toddlerhood, preschool, child, um, children in school and teenage years. Not every couple's journey involves the raising of children, but marital satisfaction can still peak in valley because there's usually other caregiving um, outlets that we have with aging parents or being in ministry or caring for people in your job, whatever that is, it can still be applicable um, to you there. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so again, we're not prescribing that this is what is going to happen to you. We're saying, this is normal. This could be what your story involves and look at it as normal and a little bit encouraging to know we're not broken. Um, there's nothing wrong with us in that regard. Um, thank you. A couple other things I wanted to piggyback before we open it up for questions that I just thought was perfect from John and Spicy's talk was um, about expectations. So when we're talking about premarital counseling, we're showing them this chart. They're not expecting for marital satisfaction to peak in valley. So many of the issues in our relationship, your relationship, when we get down to what is wrong, what is seemingly broken, what is bothering us, we can fixate on that without stopping and doing some digging to go, why am I bothered by this? Why does this make me angry and mad? And when we do dig at that, we stop and consider and realize, oh, I had some expectations here that are not being met. And I didn't quite realize them myself, and I certainly wasn't voicing them to you. And that can be um, an issue sometimes. So if you can keep in mind to stop and do some assessment on what your expectations really are for each other in different areas of being married or in your current stage. You may have done that in premarital counseling way back in the day, but you're in a different stage now. And what are the expectations that I have that I didn't know when I was 20 that I'm now dealing with in my 40s? That kind of thing. Does that make sense? Also on um, the point of John and Spicy's talk about anger, the anger component. Anger is usually always considered a secondary emotion. We see anger, we feel anger, we recognize anger, but what we're not stopping to do often is to realize that if you imagine an iceberg, we see the tip, which is the anger. We're not seeing what's floating underneath, and the anger is born from the unmet expectations, being frustrated, being embarrassed, um, feeling neglected. Um, a lot of other things are what is the foundation of the anger that sometimes we're swirling around about. Does that make sense too? Those are just two thoughts that popped up in my head when I was listening to John and Spicy that I wanted to share with you as a point of practicality and application. So, open up for questions. Hopefully you've heard enough to spur some thinking and give you a chance to ask those. Yes, sir. So the question is more along the lines of how do you restore, uh, repair, maybe broken trust um, and, and moving back to a place of normalcy? Is that getting at what you're asking? Uh, I, I think uh, 
similar question last week. I, I think the, the number one thing is, is, first and foremost, the bedrock foundation of recognizing we're in this for the long haul because this is about Jesus and his church, and that's the model set for us. Number two, uh, it's commitment to the long term. It's not giving in. It's not responding to the, uh, the various uh, stimuli, I guess you could say, but responding to Christ and Christ's intent. And then I would say, too, it's about building trust. It's about consistently building trust. It's displaying that repentance isn't just something I did to get in the kingdom of God. It's a daily lifestyle of turning from my behaviors where Christ is sanctifying us and displaying that in a hard attitude worked out in our practices where we are consistently living out change. And as we consistently live out change because Jesus is transforming us, that builds trust in that she sees that I am moving toward Christ. It's not just my words, but my actions, my tone, my attitude displays that the Lord is changing my heart. And then that allows her to give trust because I've earned it. And again, this is not that I'm, don't, don't parallel that, that I've got to earn Jesus' favor. That's, that's not it. We don't have to earn his favor. But when there's a breach of trust between us, I have to earn the right uh, to get from her um, what I need because I have broken something. She didn't break it, I broke it. And if I broke it, I need to repair my behavior. So it's time, consistent behavior. So I'll tap in too. Um, definitely time. And um, one of the things I use with trauma kids all the time is corrections can be born out of connections. So when we've, when we've breached trust with one another, as we're going to on this journey, then we need to correct by also working on our connections. And so just like John and Spicy were talking about, the, they were talking about the love bank, we also have a trust bank. And when we make some pretty significant withdrawals or some small withdrawals consistently over time, we have to then double down pretty hard and long on more deposits of trust. And so one of the things I use with folks sometimes when we're talking about what you just asked, like when there's been a breach, how do we correct? If you kind of imagine that recycle symbol that's on the bottom of packaging, you know what I'm talking about, that little curved triangle? If you imagine that in your head, and then on each side of the triangle, you have your thoughts, and you have your emotions, and then we have our actions. So back in the day, way back in the day, the Hebrews saw people as, are, as very interconnected. Our thoughts, our emotions, our actions are all very interconnected. Greeks saw us as very compartmentalized. Our thoughts are separate from our feelings, are separate from our actions. And in Western civilization, we know from history class, we're born out of that Greek thinking. And so it's hard for us to fight that and really be more Hebrew in our thinking about ourselves and realizing how interconnected those thoughts, feelings, and actions are. And so um, if you think about it, like if you start having thoughts about yourself or your spouse, you can swirl around in certain emotions which then inform your actions. And then you kind of get stuck in, I don't want to, so I ain't gonna. And sometimes someone has hurt us so much or we are, we are someone who, is, who has breached someone else and we, we know that we can't affect their thoughts and we can't quite affect their feelings or I can't 
all the time make my emotions. I can't sit in my chair and just try to make myself love or be happy sometimes. But what I can do is um, work on my actions. So if on that triangle, there's not much we can do with the thoughts or the feelings, we can address actions. And we can do, and we can do, and we can do till our thoughts start to follow suit and then our emotions start to follow suit. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's I can't do right now and I can't feel right now, but I can, I can harness my thoughts. Um, Paul tells us to take every thought captive. So I can take my thoughts about my spouse or about myself and I can measure them against scripture. Is this something the Lord would be saying about me or my spouse? Um, then if it's not, then either it's my sin or it is spiritual warfare. Sometimes we forget that our, um, our arguments... We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Right. Sometimes our arguments are not just what's in the carnal and physical there have literally been us standing in the kitchen fighting and fussing and arguing, and one of us goes, we can, we can stop enough to recognize a lie, a lie from the evil one that one of us just said. And when we stop and identify that, literally the tone in the room changes completely. So you have to realize and think about all these factors too, but Paul telling us to take our thoughts captive, measure our thoughts. Not All of our thoughts are not our own. And if it is not true, if it is not what the Lord would say over you or your spouse, then it is not coming from him, um, and it shouldn't be coming from us, and we need to fight it from the evil one. And so sometimes it's addressing the thought patterns, okay? Um, the emotions are harder to kind of just control and will to be into, um, but if you can work on the thoughts and the actions, usually the other two follow suit. Does that make sense? Um, and so just using that and just saying, I can't do very much right here, but I can work on actions to build up trust um, and prayer that the Lord would do his work and the Holy Spirit would do his work to speed up that process through time. But it can, can take time a lot, um, but it can happen. And, and repair and healing can happen for sure. Yes, good question. Sorry it took me a minute to, to come online. <laughs> Told you she was the brains of the operation. <laughs> JC. The question is, uh, with the stages of life and, and this role that we have with each other, where do children fit in that drama, that picture of Christ and the church? Uh, I think just dealing in, well, let's, let's go to the text, right? Let's, scripture teaches God before the fall, before sin, Adam and Eve were given the mandate to fill the earth by multiplying it and subduing it. You, you're doing a lot on this, right? So, so, so we are, we share, we share a worldview here. We share a scriptural passion. And so multiplication, making disciples is as much raising them in the home by multiplying as God taught us to do before the fall. Uh, and, and so, so part of God's work in restoring all of created order is to raise a godly generation that will carry the mission forward after us. Psalm 127, the arrows of the quiver, right? They, our children are arrows in the quiver. And what do arrows do? They extend the range of the warrior. And so the goal of raising up our children is to extend our range so that when they bury me one day, 
they carry on the legacy. They carry on the mission. The mission doesn't die with me. The mission goes on in them. And so they fit in that, and they are extensions of us being on mission with the Lord. And so does that answer a little bit? And the other thing to keep in mind, when we're looking at this chart that is born out of psychology and sociology and those kind of things, um, those disciplines are really, really good like science to say this is created order in its fallen state. What can we as humans identify about ourselves and how we act and operate in this fallen state? So what we're seeing here is a picture and a graph of how hard it is to work out our sanctification together while we are still battling the systems of this world. Scripture tells us that we are to fight for the kingdom, represent the kingdom, bring the kingdom to bear, but we're doing it in the fallen world with its systems, and it's a struggle. It's a fight, and it's going to have its peaks and valleys, and, in, and it's going to feel like there are battles that are lost, but the yeah. war is being won, and so it's, this is a, picture, a pictogram of that. I think that, that dip in marital satisfaction represents the severity of the war against us as we're trying to do it. Is that it's, sin has caused that dip and, and being aware of that helps us to push back. And it just shows th the, that peak, that dip, I'm sorry, that, um, not a peak, the opposite of peak, the valley, <laughs> shows the drain of resources of time, energy, um, money, um, attention that is put on the arrows in the quiver rather than each other often. Um, and it's crucial. It, it has to happen. It needs to happen. And it will have its, its rewards later and its fruit. But just knowing this is part of the journey um, can ease it a little bit. Um, yeah. Other questions? Yes, sir. For meal, what are, what are some ways for meals? No, I'm sorry. I do actually have a hearing problem, so thank you, sweetheart. Sorry, I'm not helping. laughing. I'm not laughing at all. You're not laughing at me. You're laughing with me. Yes, yes. <laughs> Say the question again. Practical ways. For the, for the recording, the question was practical ways that males can be the spiritual leader of their home. Oh, that's great. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Meals are a big part of our home and discipling our, our boys. They really are. So I heard, like, oh, that's great. That's a great question. Practical ways we can, males are, can disciple in the home. I, I, one of the things that I, so, so many, I, I refer to them as uh, ridiculous, my, this is just me, ridiculous routines. Um, ridiculous routines. And one of my ridiculous routines is, uh, I mean, I tell my boys I have a Bible reading plan I've been using for 26 years. I have a laminated copy of it I, that it's lays on the table for all people to see what the scripture reading for the day is. I don't make them read it because I don't want them to follow Jesus because daddy made them. I want them to follow Jesus because they love Jesus. So it's there as a constant reminder and they don't always do it. But what they do see is every morning when they wake, I beat them to sunrise and they wake up and they walk into the kitchen and see me sitting at the table or on the back porch, Bible open, journal open, reading and praying and communing with the Lord. And so... I want them to see me following Jesus. And it is habitual. It is a habit. If I don't get up, get my coffee, and open my Bible and my journal, I am lost. 
And so I want that the first thing I try to have is some ridiculous routines. I drive them to school, even the one who's driving. I still, the two who aren't driving, I drive them to school because of the routine I set in pre-K. On the way to school, we listen to the right kind of music. We listen to scripture and I pray over them the same prayer every day and have been since they started to school. And so, um, and so it, it's my aim that they hear that. And whether Holy Spirit or guilt, I don't care, prevents them from being a fool. Right? And so, so some ridiculous routines that I set that just don't break. Um, scripture reading, prayer. Prayer and, challenge that yeah. John and Spicy set yeah. to pray as a couple. That's right. Um, the other thing, it, it's what we're trying to communicate to our boys, but I think it applies to all the men in, in the room. Um, and, and we're taking this from a really great book called Raising a Modern Day Knight, which some of you may know. Um, but it's some hallmarks of manhood. I forgot one. Yeah, we, we, I repeat these. These are some practical ways we practice, too. It's called reject passivity, lead courageously, accept responsibility, and expect God's reward. So I say those to them almost daily uh, because it comes up in their behavior. Uh, I will, so one of, one of the ways we set that is we call out passivity uh, in their behavior. Why, why did you not respond like that when you should have responded? Um, if they don't lead, if they... If they sit back and let others lead poorly, when they could set the pace, we call out, lead courageously, step up. Um, and, and, and then the whole idea of, of accepting responsibility, particularly for boys who have a tendency to be passive, it's easy to pass the buck and say, well, it's his fault. It's your fault. And so we push constantly accepting responsibility and your consequences, then waiting on the Lord to respond to respond to us as a good father and rewarding our behavior. So those are things we say and then we try to disciple real time. And that applies to parenting, but it applies to just men as husbands. And so that that's trickier. I mean, we can call that out in the boys we're raising. It's trickier for me to call that out in a husband because it seems and feels like disrespect and will be received by him as disrespect, which then causes another crazy cycle conversation so recognizing that in yourself like where am I prone to be passive and realizing the fall the curse of the fall on men is a bent toward passivity that y'all have sorry y'all have to fight against um, and recognize and have men in your life who can call that out in you where us women as your wives can but it's it looks and feels a little bit different. Um, does that make sense? And so looking for those points of application, which are going to look different as you walk through different stages of life as far as how to do it, because the demands on you are going to be different at the different stages. So, um, And <laughs> mealtime is really a big deal for us. That's why when I heard mealtime, oh, that's important. It, even with football schedules and teenage life and working jobs, we make it a point to sit around the table and eat together. And it's rare that we don't. Even if it's like 845. <laughs> yeah, even if it's late in the evening after a JV football game or something's happened, we come home, we sit around the table because that's a place we're able to unpack their thoughts and experiences of the day and apply Christian worldview to it. And sometimes it's hostile. Sometimes it's, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's there's tears 
of, of repentance or anger or frustration. And so it's a place we commune together at a soul level while we're feeding our bodies. And so we've made it a point to make sure we spend time together. And the crazy thing is, after that, we all gather in the living room. We watch TV at our house. I don't know if you reject or love TV, but I love television, sports, uh, TV shows, and I'm going to do it until Jesus tells me not to. And he hadn't told me not to, so we're going to watch TV. Uh, we love The Office. We've seen, we've been through nine seasons of The Office maybe 25 times. She hates it. Um, I mean, I used to like it. But, but, but. Big old teenage boys don't feel like their day's complete unless we've eaten together and sat in the living room together, cut literally almost on top of each other, and in our day together. And so that togetherness, mealtime, unpacking their day, and some and that's a ridiculous routine for us. They they'll push back. We haven't had family time. We had an eighteen year old about to launch, and he's we ain't had family time. And we're, you need to go to bed. No, we have family time. So things like that that build. Build that bond are huge for us. Uh, how did the, the question is, how did these routines, these habits get established uh, for our family? Uh, my family is crazy, so I'm not going to unpack my family history for you. It's not where I learned <laughs> any of this from. Um, it was almost, there are multiple levels to that for me, and Jennifer can speak for herself. Uh, it was a reaction against, I don't want my family to be like that at all. Um, and then secondly, I had somebody along the way, a guy named Greg Cater, who, uh, eight-year NFL uh, veteran who married Jennifer and I, uh, who taught me ministry. Uh, and I watched him love his daughters through teenagehood, and they adored him. You know how some teenagers push back and don't want to be around their parents? And I watched those girls not push their parents back, but want them involved in everything. And I observed that it was how he loved them. Uh, there was an instance where Promise Keepers was big back in the 90s. And some men in our church were pushing back against Greg because he didn't show up to Promise Keepers or in the early morning stuff. And they said, that's important for men. You're not setting an example. Why aren't you here? And Greg's response, I'm at home keeping my promise. Boom. And those girls loved him. And I walked away going, I want my kids to love me like that. And I watched their routines. And an awful lot of what we do is just, I learned. I was part of their family for a while. They brought me in and I learned from them how to be a family. And so a lot of the vows I made to not let ministry come first, it's Greg. Greg taught me that. So it was modeled by somebody, not my family. And then we put things we wanted together. And um. Some of us come from really good examples of a stable marriage and a flourishing home, and some of us come from examples of dysfunction, and we can learn from both. So we can, and, and we're talking about Ruth this weekend and the gleaning concept. So to really be a student of the marriages and the family units around you, those that you grew up around and the ones that you are purposely putting yourself around now, um, and glean from them, good and bad. And watching, oh, I don't, I know I don't want to do that. I want to try to guard against that, whatever that is. Um, and it could be what we grew up with is that, that we want to steer away from. And so to, to put your eye on a different prize and say, I'm going to try to do the opposite of what, what was modeled for me if it was poor. Um, or that was a really good application of this, that, or the other in marriage, and I want to try to emulate that. And so it's okay, whatever 
background you come from. Be aware, we tend, though, to act in default based on what we saw usually growing up. So if your knee-jerk reaction in an argument or something like that is a certain way, start to be a student of that and really try to look at yourself and unpack that a little bit because it's often your default mode um, because of what you just absorbed growing up. But that does not mean you have to operate in default mode all the time. You can overwrite that. And so you have to um, do that on purpose though. So be a student and start to actively watch more couples. Um, invite more couples in your home, older couples too. Um, the model of the older couples mentoring the younger couples, beautiful and wonderful. Um, but y'all are in a great position to invite them into your space and say, teach us. Um, and, and we would welcome that chance to do that. Um, sometimes it's harder for us to stop juggling all the things to say, come into this space. But if y'all can say, come, come to our house and have dinner and, be, and welcome them and then just learn from them in that way, it would be a great, a great thing. Um, so does that make sense? You can. But, and I would also say this, read, research, and, and learn on purpose. There's so many great resources out there, books and different things that you can um, fill your tool belt um, with different things by reading and, and researching and observing and gleaning from others um, and being aware of what we're doing that's good and bad and what you want to purposefully walk away from. And that's good. Good question. Thank you. Yes, sir. Throughout marriage and having kids, how have we kept the dating mentality? Not well. Last weekend was the first marriage conference we've been to in 20 plus years of marriage. Uh, I think we do it better in some seasons than others. Um, some of it, it's not been a ridiculous routine. It's sometimes crept up as a need, and we're like, we better, we need to get away somehow. Um, and so I'm going to let you give that mm -hmm. a shot, because I don't think we've done that real well. I think um, better than you think, but, but not as consistently. <laughs> Maybe I want more. Maybe my bank, yeah. there's some withdrawals there, and I'm sitting on empty. Huh? Probably. Um, parenting wears you out. Let's just say that. And being in ministry can also wear you out. Um, so guarding that time and trying to use your resources as the best you can. And we, for a season, and I think one of the benefits of seeing something like this is realizing peaks and valleys and seasons and things can be harder and easier to get accomplished in different seasons than others. Um, and holding on for the ride and trying to be purposeful and make it happen. Um, Earlier in our marriage, when our boys were small, we had grandparent resources that we could call on for date night, so we were able to do that. Then we went through a season of death. We have one grandparent left, and we had no help, really. And so we weren't so great about asking our friends, like, hey, we'll tag team, but do that instead. So when your resources shift, or if you're not living where your family is, then looking out and being purposeful. And we've had friends who've made uh, like co-ops for friends, Everybody gets a, a night, a Friday night or Saturday, and we all rotate taking care of the kids. So you can find those ways. When they hit teenageness, there's a sweet spot, y'all, where you can be like, pizza's in the freezer. We're going to the Mexican restaurant. Don't know what y'all are doing. Peace out. So, and it's awesome because you don't have to worry about keeping them or making food. And so that time will come. Um, I, I think, I, think I, I have, I have a really poor a lot of raising, a lot of early 
trauma for me. I have a hard time asking. If it ain't bleeding, it ain't hurt. And that's, that's a lie. It's a lie. Um, and, and, uh, and so I wanted to be self-sufficient. And so asking for help in those early kids' years was hard. I don't want to ask for help because I can handle it. And I think that to discipline a ridiculous routine is to ask for help. Be humble enough to say, can you watch the kids so we can get away? And that's, the fellowship will do that for you. You just got to be humble enough to ask. And just being flexible and thinking outside the box. So a lot of times date night is date lunch because they're in school <laughs> and we can go to lunch. And so it just, um, it looks different. And so being, but being purposeful and mindful and keeping it as a priority and, and thinking together on how we can um, think outside the box at different stages to keep it preserved and make it happen. That's good. Good question. You know, a sin, just going to confess a sin. It's not bad. Uh, these two weekends, you, John has encouraged me to look at the bank account. and this, I love motorcycles. been riding since I was little. And uh, I was just wondering if I had enough for withdrawal of the Harley I want. So I was, you can think on that. You don't have to no, answer right now. But is that? We do not. Can I make a withdrawal? We have three going to college. We don't have money for a motorcycle. I'm actually sitting up here thinking about that. Have I banked enough to go buy a Harley? And the love bank, sure. I don't think that's going to write a check to the motorcycle. <laughs> Good. So the question was kind of, um, if I'm understanding correctly, tandem between both parties in a marriage having different fears and how do we recognize and work with those? Right. In life. Yes. All of those. And then working on the conflict that kind of emerges with that. Um, when you were talking about that, one thing that came to mind um, when we're talking about folks from trauma and kids, we do a lot out of our fears, whether we're trauma, have trauma in our background or not. And so our, we're not to be a slave to fear, but recognizing them and identifying them first. And that's going to look different back in the day. Before my mom died, I didn't really have a fear of me passing before my boys were raised, but I do now. And so it, our fears can ebb and flow just like this based on the different life stages, like you were saying. One of the things we do, though, with our fears, especially if we don't talk about, talk about them, talk them out, is have one of three different reactions. We can fight, we can flight, where we want to flee each other or flee the situation, or we can freeze and we just don't talk about it. And sometimes men can be very internal anyway, and so if freeze is a response and a reaction, we tend to, I call, I'm like, I'm shriveling up inside and we don't talk about it. So if you recognize, whether you're talking about trauma or whether you're talking about relationships and life in general, if we recognize that this, these are the three tendencies that we all seem to share with fears, fight, flight, or freeze, we can identify them in our marriages, I think, too. So when we recognize a lot of this is recognizing. Like if we can just see what's going on, it's not as scary. And we can then kind of start to tame it a little bit. So if you re recognize fight, flight, and freeze, you can see that in your relationship too and be able to call that out and understand, oh, my partner isn't wanting to flee me. They're fleeing something else. Maybe it's this fear. And if we can start to take it back to what the root was and then start, start to unpack with discussion, honest discussion, not dishonest discussions, like the love busters, then we can start to peel back like the layers of the onion to see 
there's really is a fear base of something. And just when you t- when you're talking about understanding those fears, we have to talk about them honestly. You know, some marriages you go through a season, especially early where you're honeymooning and you're trying to put your best foot forward. So you're not really being honest. You're not really telling your, your spouse, no, that really did bother me or that did really hurt my feelings or that. Um, and so being honest about our fears and not trying to sugarcoat them like we do in the South or gloss them over, but being raw and honest. Um, and then listening to each other about that. Not necessarily trying to fix it, but just listening and meeting each other where they are. Um, and then helping the other identify how we react about those fears, whether it's a fight, flight, or freeze response, and not seeing that as a personal attack against yourself as the person who's living with that fight, flight, or freeze response, but helping them to say, we don't have to respond that way. And most of the time we have to calm, you have to calm first, whatever that needs to look like, and then you are unpacking and realizing the fear and talking it through and just talking about it together. Um, the scripture passage when it talks about, and a man shall leave his family and, or a woman shall leave her family and cling to her spouse, that verb cling is the word debak, which means like a vice grip. So when we're clinging, we're clinging through the fears, we're clinging through the fight, flight and freeze responses that can get ugly and nasty. And um, we're clinging to each other while we're unpacking the hard and nasty. Does that make sense? Um, The other day, the other weekend, we used the word picture of like Jim Cantore in the hurricane. You know how he's like bracing himself up against the maelstrom of wind and rain, which is what I felt like sitting at senior night last night in in the rain. But like that clinging together despite the wind and rain and the hurricane forces that are kind of coming against you in the moment. Does that make sense? So clinging together, realizing we all have fears. What are they? Um, Unpacking them, talking about them honestly, as often as needed. Just because we had one discussion doesn't mean it's done. We may have to talk about this repetitively over time. Um, And recognizing, oh, my spouse is really probably in a fight, flight, or freeze response, and it's not a personal affront against me. I can help them through it. Does that make sense? What she said. (laughs) Yes. Perfect. So the question was, in the ebb and flow of life, knowing that satisfaction can um, peak and valley and all the demands of life and ministry, how do we set boundaries? First, I need to give you a gold star for using the word boundaries and realizing they are needful. Because that's really the first key, I think, is realizing well where we need to apply some boundaries sometimes. Um, do you want to speak into that first? But I just wanted to give yeah. you a gold star for boundaries. Um, I learned very quickly in a bad ministry situation when we were in Texas uh, before I went to learn church planning. Uh, I, um, I learned that ministry cannot be number one. Uh, work is not number one. Uh, none of those things are number one. And uh, I made a vow when we got married. And I think I mentioned this last night that nothing would come before my family. And so the chief thick fortress around my family is they are first. 
Now, understand the Lord sits enthroned on top of that. I'm not saying my family comes before Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the Lord gave me this family, and therefore they are the first, 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 first. So there is a hard, thick fortress wall around them. Nothing comes in front of them. And so that means ministry. Uh, that will cost you because there will be people who will say Jesus, 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 then expect you to put them behind you. And so you're going to have to be willing, uh, anybody, to say, God gave me this family, and I'm going to protect them, come what may. Um, and so that has to be just a priority. And whatever we have to do to defend that, there are times where uh, we just say no. Say no a lot. No is your best friend. Say no. And saying no will save you an awful, awful lot. I'm writing notes up at... I'm a mom. I'm a teenage mom. My short-term memory is shot. So I'm writing it Looks down. Looks just so like the train track picture, but in words, <laughs> right here. So I'm, I'm making notes to myself, so I don't want you to feel like you have to sit, speak on what I'm talking about here. So I would echo that, um, just putting a strong boundary around your family unit um, as much as you can. I think you've done a really good job with that. We have three PKs. We have three preacher's kids, and I'm, I'm not sure that they know that they are, if that makes sense. I, some of... I don't know. I, I haven't really dug deep with them in conversation, but it doesn't seem like they have resentment against the church or ministry. Some of you snowbird folk who know them, y'all can do some research for me and talk to them. But I, th- I don't think that they do um, because he's put some pretty strong boundaries in place and kept them even at the point of saying no to things. And that's one of the things with boundaries, like we can talk a good game about boundaries until it comes time to say yes or no. And um, one of the things, I work in a pretty impoverished neighborhood and one of my coworkers just, I love how she puts this. She says, there's an endless font of need. There will always be an endless font of need at your jobs, in your ministries, and in your home and to make sure that we're addressing our home font of need first and laying the others aside where we can, which I know is easier to say than do. Um, The other thing that came to mind when he was talking, I was thinking through this question, there was a season where I got to spend some time at Focus on the Family and they were talking to us about all these different social ills, things that are a result of the fall, and we're kind of sitting there glassy-eyed and burdened, and someone came up and said, you guys, you, you don't have to fix all of them. And I, I, that has always kind of replayed in my mind. We will look around in ministry and life and see the endless font of need and all the social ills and all the things that are going to need our attention, and we're to be obedient to the Lord and address the ones that he has laid in front of us and trust he's laying others in front of others for them to address, and that's where the beauty of the body comes into play, that we're working together toward his kingdom, but it's not all on our shoulders to bear them ourselves. and so what are the things the Lord has called you to? Hone that vision and be okay with delegating and letting other people do other things and keeping that boundary pretty tight. The other thing I would say is, as a woman, um, good grief the demands our attention and our time and be okay with seasons and your involvement in home job and ministry being flexible and fluid going through the seasons when my boys were little I stayed at home and did little at home things to help bring in some money um and I was more available for ministry and home 
And as they got older and more expensive, but then their need of me decreased, I could do a little bit more working part-time. And so then my ministry was more part-time and, and those kind of things. And so then it, and now I'm working full-time. The boys are very teenagery and they don't, they just need coaching. So it just ebbs and flows. It's different. And um, so we just, I made it a priority to, to do what I was going to do. What, what could I do to raise the boys well? And then what I was going to do as a job or how I was going to be involved in ministry was going to be as a, what's the word I'm trying to use here? Um, that was secondary to my primary role. And so just putting your roles and the demands in the right order for seasons and boundaries. We're, we're seven minutes past lunch. Oh, sorry. And so um, you guys ready to call Maybe one more question. I hate to just like do it like that. It's like, lunchtime, get out of here. <laughs> but yes, last question. Right, good question. So the question here was families without children, marriages without children. And what does that look like as far as, what did you say? Right, and investing time and in, in resources of, in ministry or at home. Um, so I would say still keep in mind this is pretty tied to child rearing, but the peaks and valleys of marital satisfaction are still going to apply when you're not raising children. Um, some of the demands of time, energy, and resources may not be as thick and as strong on you, which is a good thing in that regard and that it, for your marital unit, um, but you're still a family. And you're still called together to image forth um, Christ and his kingdom. And so being on mission together, um, whatever that needs to look like. And it's going to have seasons too. Seasons of what your job looks like. Season of what your ministry looks like. Um, and there's going to be ebb and flow there. So all the things that we've talked about of boundaries, um, of, of time and attention and date nights still apply because you're still trying to live out the kingdom within the systems of this world and the pressures um, and challenges are still going to be the same for you as well. So just kind of realizing seasons and pattern and that it can still be applicable, but understanding that if that's normal, we're going to fight through it, we're going to work through it and not see ourselves as broken or unfixable. But y'all then have a little bit more resources of time to apply out together as a team or as individuals. I, uh, I would say whether you choose to have children or can't for whatever, for whatever reason you might not have children and how do you do, how do you, how do you do that life together? I would say a couple of things, serve your church hard and well. There are families who are going to need your assistance and help be surrogate parents, be, be all manner of assistance to folks who are in the weeds. And then I would say in your city, this is a close personal issue of mine, find a way to mother and father people in the faith Making disciples, spiritual fatherhood, spiritual motherhood is a real issue. There are a lot of spiritual orphans in Western Christianity. Mother and father people in the faith. Teach them how to follow Jesus and find out how to serve your city. Work in the public square somehow. Bring Jesus into the public square. You'll have all manner of time. I did not know how much time I had. I didn't know how easy it was until I had kids. And then realized, oh my gosh. 
They're time eaters, right? And so you have that manner of time, pour it into your city somehow, some way, bring the healing of the gospel to your city and be a spiritual mother and spiritual father of people who are coming into the faith. Um, Spencer. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, it's awesome. Hey, do y'all get to do y'all get to stick around for a little while? Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, fantastic. All right. Hey, these guys are here all weekend. So if you would like to pick their brains at lunch or at supper tonight or breakfast tomorrow or during the rec day, man, uh, just they're here and, and a resource for you guys. So thank you all so much for sharing.